When did you decide you want to go into law? I wanted to go to law school from uh, seventh grade. How did that happen? Um, I'm not good in math. I'm great at reading and speaking. And I didn't want to be broke. And the only person I knew that wasn't a professional athlete that made big money was Judge Rogers, who uh, I had known since birth. And if you know Judge Rogers, Judge Rogers used to be a school teacher before he became a, a judge. He lived directly across the street from my grandfather. So I have known him all of my life. And he is kind of, he, he directed a lot of my life. Uh, and uh, I wanted to be like him in some respects. Uh, the, the, the whole law thing evolved. I wanted to be a, a sports agent because I wanted to take my sports career and my legal knowledge and use it. And I did that for a minute. But uh, I decided to go to law school in seventh grade um, based purely on watching Judge Rogers and wanting to be like him. Richard Rouser, nickname I should, I should call it from back. No nickname. There's no um, Richard Football Rouser. Nah. nah, there's no nickname. Um, special guest today, Richard Rouser. What's going on, brother? I'm good, man. How you doing? It's going to be exciting. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Exciting. So I want to, um, Richard Rouser grew, you, because I remember we had this conversation years ago. Let me kind of get into this. We had a conversation years ago, and you made a point to me that was, that stuck with me. I think we were standing in front of the lodge. And you said, based on the community has changed because a lot of people got successful and moved out west. The years, like probably probably seven, eight years, you, and that stuck with me, that how our communities changed because people got successful and left. So I want to talk about the beginning for you and how growing up in West Palm Beach. Right. Born and raised in West Palm Beach? Born and raised. You know, how, how was it growing up and... West Palm Beach group. And also brothers and sisters, give me a little bit of that also. Okay. Well, um, what is unique, I guess, about my story is that my family was the first African American family to move into an all white neighborhood in Palm Beach County. And so uh being the only black family in uh a community is not all peaches and cream. Uh in dealing with uh I guess we were at the tail end of uh, segregation here in West Palm Beach, uh, Palm Beach County, if you, if you know anything about its history, is has never been at the forefront of the civil rights struggle. In fact, the Palm Beach County School District didn't desegregate the schools until 1972 fully. So we move into this all-white neighborhood, and uh, we're not accepted, of course. Uh, we had people uh, trying to get us to leave and to move. And then if you fast forward from that experience uh, with the neighbors and with the children in that community, uh, once desegregation fully uh, was put into effect, I'm one of the only or there are only two blacks in my uh, neighborhood by the time I started getting bused to school on an all white school bus to an inner city uh, elementary and middle school. So, uh, you know, then. Uh, I guess as a result of being 
uh, light skin uh, on a white bus going to the hood. Um, I had to deal with colorism, um, reverse colorism, not, you know, generally when you think of colorism, you think of uh, light skinned people looking down on dark skinned people, but it was everyone looking down on the fact that I'm on this bus with all these white people. And so uh, adjusting to the different communities that I came from and had to interact with, it probably shaped me into the person I am today. How old were you? We moved into that neighborhood when I was three. And, uh, of course, I started going to school at six. Um, um, In first grade, I went to uh, South Olive Elementary School uh, because as a part of desegregation, uh, my mother was transferred from Roosevelt Elementary School to South Olive. Uh, they took all the good teachers from the black schools. She was a teacher. She was a school teacher. Uh, they took all the good school teachers from the uh, predominantly black schools and put them in the white schools and took the bad teachers from the white schools and put them in the black schools. And so my mother got uh, transferred to uh, Roosevelt Elementary School. I mean, I'm sorry, to South Olive Elementary School. And I was brought there uh, and I was one of only two students at that school. So were you so you grew up with your mother and father in the home? My father and my parents divorced when I was in second grade. Okay. Yeah. Brothers and sisters? None. Only child. You're the only child. Right. How was it being the only child in this environment? Well, you know, fortunately for for me, uh, having grown up here, and my grandfather was a uh, a, a very well known football coach in, um, in in the black community. He coached at Roosevelt Elementary School and was a teacher at Industrial High School. So for the older people, they'll know that has significant meaning. Um, I was kind of looked after. Um, and was able to move within the community, the various circles of the community. Um, you know, we were a very close-knit uh, community back in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, much more than we are now. So so I'm trying to see three-year-old Richard, you know, growing up in that community. How long did you guys stay in that community? Uh, my mother was there almost uh, 50 years. So you're talking about your mom and father, you first moved in, they were together. Right. So there was that protection there of right. a father. Well, kind of. My, my father was an engineer, and he worked at uh, uh, Cape Kennedy for NASA. And so he was uh, living in Cocoa and here. And he would come home on the weekends, but he worked in, in Cocoa at, at the uh, space station or the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy uh, space station uh, during the week. So he never really was uh, present through the week. Right. Uh, So did it, did it create a level of fear with your mom? You believe? Oh yeah. I, I I know for a fact uh, because they were doing, you know, they were vandalizing our house. Uh, They were putting tar on the house. They were egging the house. They were doing things uh, throughout the week. And then, you know, it stopped once uh, some of the neighborhood kids came and told us who who it was. And ironically enough, it was our paper boy uh, who lived across the street who was doing all of the acts of vandalism. So the kids that you were going to school with, they lived in the community also? Yes. So how did the friendship side come? Like, how did you start building friends well, around there? Uh, I mean, superficially, uh, it I think it has shaped my uh, dealing with white people um, throughout my life from the standpoint that um, when we all got bused to, and, and, and Roosevelt is probably the, the more significant uh, tipping point 
in my life story is that the people who I thought were my friends, because they now were the minority, uh, sought refuge with other white people and left me in the cold. Mm. And so I then had to try and establish relationships with the black kids who I did not live around. Um, and that became easy because I was an athlete and I was a track. I ran track in uh, middle school and played football. And so, as you know, uh, those relationships uh, can overcome, you know, Jewish uh, boundaries and neighborhoods. And, you know, once you are on the team and you're part of it, then, you know, that kind of has always been the trajectory that I was on. But growing up in the community, you guys were friend when you guys were there, when you went to school. Oh, yeah. It changed. Because they, they bust white kids from my community and from another community, Westgate. And at the time, Westgate was known for the Klan, was known for, uh, I guess, socioeconomically a lower class white person. And they came with all of the stuff that, you know, that that group of people come with. And they sought refuge with them for protection, I believe, uh, out of fear of black people and, 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 you know, white supremacy being what it is. Uh, they probably did not want to interact with the black children that came from Dunbar Village, the White House. Uh, those were the communities that uh, that uh, brought kids to uh, Roosevelt Middle School when I was there. So you think you're, the same type of issues you're going through as a child, you think your mom was going through that as a teacher also? Oh, absolutely. you both were kind of— Absolutely. Um, um, but my mother has a, a, a very special way about her so that— uh, uh, she can get along with the devil. And uh, so they they really like her. In fact, um, I have met uh, students, um, you know, that she taught at South Olive Elementary School for 37 years. And I have met students uh, today that still remember her uh, fondly. Um, there's a, a world-renowned artist by the name of Preston Sampson who who did not go to the South Olive. He went to Roosevelt Elementary that still remembers her fondly and uh, always talks about his favorite teacher being my mother. So so growing up in that environment and growing up in the community, did you ever have a sense of feeling, you know, like you could hang out with this crew? Because you were too light-skinned for, for the other students and you were too dark for right. the other students. Did you ever felt like you were... I don't know the right terms was used. Like, did you feel like you ever loved, I guess, from anybody? Are you any, you, I know sports made it all okay. Right. When they go, when you got, but before the sports. Um, I mean, I didn't feel, I, I didn't recognize racism until, um, middle school, quite frankly. Uh, I knew that those people in the neighborhood were doing bad things, but I did not have a concept. I, I can't remember a concept that it was as a result of our race. Uh, you know, one thing about black people in this country when it when dealing with race, um, I think that the generation before me was very good at protecting their children from the insults of racism and, and race. And I'll give you the best example I can give you. Every summer I would go to New York and uh, with my grandparents who lived in Newburgh, New York. And I would fly up to New York. I would spend the summer with them. And then they would drive back down to Tallahassee, which is where my grandparents are from. And my mother would drive up and pick me up. Well, when we would make that drive from New York 
to Florida about the Thursday before the drive. My grandmother would start frying up chicken. She would start frying pork chops. She would uh, make this big thing of lemonade. She would make this great big pound cake. And I always thought she was doing that because she was giving me my last meal of the stuff I really liked, right? It was never about you? It was never about me. It was as a result of segregation. They had no places to stop. So they would pack all the food so that they could eat along the way because they didn't have the luxury of stopping at restaurants. And we would drive in a caravan of all my grand, my grandfather and his brothers because it was safety in numbers. I didn't realize that until I was in my 40s, that the purpose of the way we did things in coming back to the family reunion every year was as a result of safety as a, because of Jim Crow and segregation. Did you learn that from having a conversation or you just put two and two together? I put two and two together. So also when you're growing up earlier on, did you have your 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 grandparents? Did they have a lot of children or no? My a tight my, family, real my, small family. My father's an only child. I'm an only child. My mother has uh, had one brother. Wow! So the yeah. the family was really yeah. So all right, so let, let's get past. So after middle school, you're getting into high school. How was the high school experience for and you? By that time, I was fully accepted in the community. Um, I was one of the top athletes here in Palm Beach County. Um, uh, I was known for track. Uh, I was a you know state champion in high school. Uh, I ran internationally. I ran, you know, I was in the top 20 high school sprinters in the country. So, you know. So your love for sports, you think that started from your grandfather? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went out, and I'll tell you another story. Uh, in the community where I lived, I went out. They had a baseball team. Mm -hmm. uh, my house uh, was on a park uh, in the middle of this community of houses. If the, you think about the, the – it's off of Chillingsworth. You know where mm -hmm. Chillingsworth is? Uh, yes. Uh, there's Chillingsworth Park. Well, in that park, they used to have uh, baseball, Optimus baseball. And I went out for the team, and I got cut. And so in response to me getting cut and I was crying, I was, I mean, I was dejected. My mother uh, put me in the car and brought me out to Tate. And Dan Calloway, who was one of her high school classmates, was the coach at Tate. And therein began my career uh, and my relationship with Riviera Beach uh, is that I started playing baseball at Tate at probably six, seven years old. And, you know, I stopped playing baseball before high school. Um, but you know, I was, I knew everybody by that point. So because through the sports, through the sports. Yeah. So uh, you played football also Yep. in high school. Yes. So then after and, co high, and college, so was there any teacher that left an impact in the community or I know guys, I'm assuming like Dan Calloway mm -hmm. that accepted you and brought you in. Was there anybody else that influenced you and gave an impact to you during high school? Absolutely. And crazy enough, it, it was a little Sicilian guy by the name of Anthony Spataro, who was my track coach, both in middle school and throughout high school. Uh, he, if you remember the, uh, a lot of you, your viewers would probably be too young to remember. There was a uh, TV series called The White Shadow. It was about a basket, white basketball coach looking after. I'm going to act like I know what you're talking okay, about. Look, <laughs> looking after uh, uh, this basketball team of black kids. And, and Coach Pitaro was a guy who fought for the black children sometimes more fiercely than the white teachers uh, that are the black teachers that – uh, were at our school, uh, and he got in a lot of battles with the uh, school administration, 
Uh, and ultimately, he got fired because of him trying to get some kids some scholarships, and they didn't like the fact that he was doing something outside of the status quo uh, to help those children. So the impact he had on you is, like, what was it? I mean, he we spent— uh, he is probably the closest thing to a second father I've ever had. Um, and unfortunately, he passed away from Lou Gehrig's disease. But he and I remained close throughout his life. Um, and from uh, 12 to 50, uh, he and I were, we talked almost daily. So was it the game that he was giving you? Like, what's some of the conversation? Well, like? uh, he was a student of track which is a very, you know, it, it, it is technically a very um, complex sport uh, because you have, you know, stretching, running, how to get faster. It's not just you just show the up and run. The science of the body. The science of it. And he was a student of it. And, uh, and so uh, he would impart his knowledge to me, and it all made sense. Uh, and, and we spent a lot of time together um, during the summers when a lot of kids would probably be at, camp or I would be at, out at the beach with him running because when you're on beach sand, you can measure your stride. And so he was trying to lengthen my stride. You know, that was one of the big things because I, I'm naturally tight in terms of um, my, you know, my muscles are tight. And so he worked on flexibility throughout probably five, six years. That was the thing we really worked on. And, you know, when you start seeing success from your labor, uh, you know, it, it motivates you to, to work harder. And, and uh, you know, the one thing I will say that I remember, I, I used to come in third a lot. And uh, one day I had to have a talk of heart-to-heart uh, -heart with myself. And I looked in the mirror and I said, you know, the only reason you keep coming in third is because you believe you're not a winner. And... You need to, you doing everything to win, start believing in yourself. And from that day forward, I mean, I won the state in my junior year of high school. Uh, it wasn't, you know, I, I think I lost two races in three years. Where do you get that inspiration from? It, God. You know, um, God comes to you, or and, and God, I'm not saying Jesus, or I'm not saying any religion. I'm saying God, or or that spiritual power that we all have talks to you. A lot of times, uh, we don't listen, and I'm clued in pretty good of when I get that spirit voice, um, and it's never been wrong. What's the what do you believe, what does that look like? What does that feel like when you're hearing from a higher power to say, you need to do this? What is that? You know, I I have a young man in my life who I told him that uh, it's, it's really like a conscience. You know, some of us will see something we want to do and we'll say, nah, that ain't, that won't end up well. Others of us will see something we want to do and be like, Let's do it. Not listening to or don't have that voice that says, nah, that's not for you. It's a, it's, it, it, it's that gut feeling. Yeah. That, 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 you know, some people call it gut feeling. Some people call it your inner voice, um, your conscience. Uh, all of those things, I believe, are your higher power uh, speaking to you, whether you choose to listen or not. That's the difference between a lot of people. A lot of people just turn it off. And they do what they want to do, irrespective of 
that voice telling them, nah, that ain't the way you should move. And I tend to listen to mine more than a lot of people. And it and, and it almost never has failed. So even till today you still Oh do yeah. That? Oh yeah. And 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 it and it comes most often with in dealing with people. So but even because you're you practice law. Right. Wouldn't the law and the book, the science would be more of what you need to go with, but sometimes you go with gut feelings. Well, also? I'm I'm a trial lawyer, so in selecting a jury, you have to uh, I, you can't identify who a person is by what they say. You have to watch how they act. So I'll give you for instance. I was talking. I was with a trial lawyer uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was telling us a story about. He had two MAGA Republicans on a, and he knew they were MAGA uh, Republicans on a jury up in Pensacola. And Pensacola, of course, is going to be a pretty conservative place. And he had a case where a black child had been molested by a pedophile against a, a, a daycare. Well, c- conventional wisdom would have been to put those two guys off the jury. But something spoke to him about how they were reacting when he was speaking about the facts of the case, and he kept them on. The jury came back with a $100 million verdict. Now, when he was able to talk to the jurors after the case, the two MAGA guys wanted to give more. They wanted to, they wanted to send a message to the world that this would not be accepted. And they, they clumped together the daycare with the pedophile and wanted both of them to be punished. They were, in fact, they wanted to burn the, the, the words they used was burn both of them. So uh, that inner voice said something to him. Nah, I'm not going to allow my generalizations and my prejudices against MAGA folks control this decision. Something about them says they might be good for this case. And so that's what a trial lawyer has to do. I have to read people. I have to read body language. I have to understand uh, that what you say sometimes, you know, quite honestly, a lot of times when I'm selecting a jury, I can tell a person who is purposely trying to get on the jury to blow my case up. We have that happen. They ain't got nothing better to do than to try to make sure that this person doesn't get any money. So, uh, that inner voice has to come to, you know, they saying all the right things, but it's just something uh, that about them that I, you just, you, you feel it. Yeah. And, and you, and you got to be tuned into that. So let's go back into the high school. Um, So Shapiro, what's his name? Spataro. Spataro. Mm-hmm. The influence you got that, that you received from him. And then you got to the point where you're doing great in sports. Now it's time to go into the next level of education. Right. So in your family, was the next level of education a a regular conversation? Was that already expected from you from the beginning? Because your mom being an educator, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, you know, all of my family, my mother's a teacher, my grandfather's a teacher, my grandmother's a teacher, and your mother's side or your father's on my father on my mother's side, my father's side. They, my father was the first college graduate in his family, uh, but my on my mother's side. They had been educated for over a hundred years. So it was almost like, all right, when you finish high school, you're going to college. That's the next step. Right. And, and uh, in retrospect, as I have gotten older, um, that thinking 
uh, is was predominant in the black community. However, I I don't know if it's the wisest way to look at uh, how we should be proceeding. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a stigma that we place on people who don't go to college. When college is an investment, and sometimes it can be a bad investment. You know, I I run into kids all the time who got a criminal criminology degree or a psychology degree or sociology can't find a job and then they say well i'm gonna go ahead and go to law school so they are compounding the bad decision they made with the degree selection that they had and then they're going to get in more debt going to law school uh and if they're not going to be a great student in law school they're probably not going to make any money doing that either or they're not going to finish or pass the bar so we have to look at who and what we are and be comfortable with that and then try and maximize what we're good at. Far too many people have this mindset of go to college, get a good job, and never have any inkling on how they are going to take this, go to college, get a good job, and fill in the middle. Because one does not necessarily equal the other. And our community makes you feel as though you're a failure if you don't go to college, or if you go to college and don't finish. When life, the life spectrum is so long that that is short-sighted and that everybody has their own abilities, which may not necessarily have college in the middle. But do you believe some of the difficulty is because there's not a blueprint that students could look after or the one-on-one mentorship and relationship is a difficult? Like I think all those things play a role. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that uh, well, I think that that's where parenting comes in. I think your a good parent knows its children, knows his or her children, and tries to put his or her children in the best possible position to succeed. What about the students that are not lucky to have good parents? Well, um, that's more difficult, quite honestly. Um, a, a lot of them are probably going to have to be self-motivated. And hopefully they can get a mentor that uh, likewise can see the benefit in them. But I, I still think that we have to get out of this whole notion that you got to go and spend $60,000 and get a degree in order to be successful. Because that's not true. It's especially not true in the white community is that, you know, certainly we have other other uh, influences and pressures that the white community doesn't have share. But. Nonetheless, you know, I know so many uh, black families whose self-image is tied to their children's success in college. So I know people whose sons have told them they wanted to go to fire school, but they were demanding that they go to college so that they could be the fire chief. Well, that didn't necessarily work out so well. And now they're back here in fire school, which they could have went to in right straight out of high school. Firemen make over $100,000 a year. It would have been far better. Uh, you know, all my classmates that went and worked in, in the public sector right out of high school are retiring. Here I am, Mr. Big Lawyer. I got a few more years for I'm going to be in my 70s. So who was the smarter person? So do you think the grind or the, not even the grind, the, the lack of identity in our communities People just want the identity of, oh, my child went to college, that we're successful. Oh, yeah. You think that comes from that? Most- oh, yeah. No, no, no. Listen, man. Um, 
I know for a fact, and, and it's not just black people. I've seen white people do this too. Let's just, I'm going to give you an analysis. A uh, young man goes to college, goes to FAMU, doesn't do well, flunk out. Parents tell him, don't come home. Enroll at Tallahassee Community College. You know why they tell, tell him that? So that when their friends ask, how is Junior doing up there at FAMU? Or, or where is Junior? He up there in Tallahassee. And he drops it. She, they'll drop it right there because they're thinking, they, they know the friends are thinking they're at FAMU, right? And I've seen that happen more times than you can. When the, I know that the child unflunked out and he over there maybe at Tallahassee but community, Tallahassee. but he's still in that. They won't let him come home, right? right? And so that says to me that their ego is tied to their child's uh, attainment of a college degree or at least looking like he's attaining a top college degree. When that child could come here and be working at the city of West Palm Beach or at the county. Already activating their life. And, and getting a retirement. Because the Florida retirement system is one of the best in this country. Uh, some of these jobs, law firms don't offer great retirements. They offer 401ks, which are tied to the stock market, which you, you never know what you might get. Whereas a pension and a retirement is not very many opportunities to get those. And so our focus, uh, we have to quit allowing white supremacy to direct our focus and what is truly beneficial to us versus what we perceive to be beneficial to us. So when you got, so point well taken. When you got to the point of high school, now you're transitioning into college. What school did you go to and how did you get to the point to making that decision? Um, I, my, my, the first school that I went to was uh, Florida A&M university and I had a football scholarship and, um, I, I told you that Spataro got fired um, as a result of trying to help some kids get scholarships and the school administration didn't like the way he went about it. So when he got fired, uh, they came to me and said, hey, you know, you got enough uh, uh, credits to graduate. Uh, why don't you leave? And so I left uh, in uh, December of my senior year and I enrolled at Florida A&M for the spring. And I was there one semester and uh, I decided I wanted to, because I had received uh, interest from some bigger schools and I wanted to go to the division one. Uh, and I went out to California junior college and then I transferred to university of Illinois. So you went from fam to California. Mm -hmm. What was the experience, the, you know, the experience of moving, like going from those different places? Well, well my father was in California at the time. So I got an opportunity to live with him for a year and a half. How was that? Because it seemed like you guys were disconnected at an age. Well, no, we he was always very active in my life. He just wasn't around. Okay. Uh, and uh, he was a thousand percent in um, and, and quite honestly was in some respects living vicariously through me. Um, I was accomplishing the things he always wanted to do. And so I was a junior college all American and um and football I, or track. In football. Mm -hmm. And uh I got recruited by almost everybody and I ended up at the University of Illinois. Uh and he was a little too you know, he was like the quintessential uh soccer dad or tennis mom, you know, he was a little 
it was a little too much. He was in. He was, yeah, he was in. He, had he already a, knew where he wanted he, you to go. Right. And he and he ain't played football at first, <laughs> but he had all the ideas and all that he knew the most, you know. He already knew how to right. block the plays and everything. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, but how was that support from your father? Oh, I mean, it was super, man. I mean, my dad and I were always very close. My dad was a person that um, that was very uh, transparent, you know. Uh, even back then, my dad liked to smoke him a little weed, and he didn't hide it, you know. And so um, I think that that relationship where we didn't have all of these barriers that parents have uh, created a, a, a very close relationship. Um, and And it made me able to critically assess him as a parent as well. I mean, he had his shortcoming and his failings. And I would say that the greatest shortcoming was a um, my dad was a pipe dreamer. Explain and, that. Okay. A pipe dreamer is a person that believes in their soul that something is when it isn't. Okay. So my, you know, I'll give you the best example. My dad, uh, he created a, a system um, that they use in top secret, uh, large-scale projects like satellites. You know, a satellite is generally built in multiple places across the country. Uh, he worked at Lockheed, and they had the uh, heat shields, and they had other components in, in a satellite. And he would track how the money was being spent and if the project was on time, right? And so because he created this program, he was highly sought after in the defense industry to come to different companies. Well, he would tell me, yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to go work at uh, FMC. I said, yeah, when you start? Well, my interview is next week. Was there really an interview? There might have been an interview, but he had already decided he had the job even before he had the interview. So he's pipe dreaming. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to take that he's job. He's yeah. locked in already. Right, yeah, I got it. And you may not get it, you know? Right. And so I started noticing, I mean, I was in my 20s when I started noticing that the pipe dreams were, and, you know, and I attribute a little bit to maybe smoking weed uh, because he would, he was great at, you know, I'm going to, I'm going uh, to. <laughs> As gonna, he smoked. Uh, yeah, he said, I think, because he's from Tallahassee, I think I'm going to go open a florist shop in Tallahassee. He said, what you think about that? I said, I think that's a great idea. He said, go research that for me, man. <laughs> right, right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You got to go ahead and do that. Yeah, you, you go research it. it. Yeah, I'm going to do it, but or, or I'm going to open a liquor store in, in San Jose. He says, how you think about that? I said, that'd be a great idea, man. Go research, go research that, that for me. me. Right. Yeah, so <laughs> he was a pipe it. dreamer, you know? I get it. So, and even um, growing up, well, I want to go a little back. So going into school to fam, Mm-hmm. How was that experience first day or the process going? Like, what is that experience? Because I think a lot of people don't know the experience of a HBCU and that first feeling you get when you're on campus, on the yard. What is that experience for you? And how long did you stay on there also? I was just there one semester. Uh, well, it was for me. Um, I, how do I say it? I, I was not fully adjusted from high school. So I was young. I was a younger student. I was 17 
you know, there. And um, I didn't turn 18 until that August. And so my room, they put me in the room with a senior who was never there. Yeah. And um, it's too extreme. Know, yeah. And so uh, I really didn't have any connections. There were several people from West Palm Beach. I, you know, that's the one thing about going to a, a Florida HBCU if you're from Florida is you're going to know somebody. Right. Uh, and I had a bunch of family in Tallahassee because my father's from Tallahassee. And I didn't I don't think that I really benefited from the experience because I had family I could go be with. And they came and got me, and I was with them more than I was with in the camp. my class. That was your safe space. Yeah, so I got picked up, and I spent more time. You know, I come, I go to class, come back, go to practice. They come pick me up. Then I go back to the dorm, and so I wasn't really interacting with the students. I did find my way to the uh, Omega house. I was going to ask you, when did that, when did, when did, because it sounded like, you know, Richard was just schooling and football. There had to be some type of experience. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't even want to give that opinion uh, or I, that impression. I, uh, I was, I was a C's get degrees student. You know, I went when I had to. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't Phi Beta Kappa. I was, you know, you know, I wasn't summa cum laude. I was thank you, Lordy, when I got out of right, school. Right, okay? right, right. So uh, I was uh, I was hitting every Thursday night was the Q party at the Q house. So I made my way down there. Why did you pick the to be a Q? My grandfather's a Q. My grandfather's one of the founding members of the Kappa Epsilon chapter that I'm a member of here in West Palm Beach. And so, you know, there really was no, my grand, my Wasn't grandfather, my uncle is, is an Omega. My first cousin is an Omega. All of my cousins are Omega. So it is what we do in this family. So that's standard. Like, so you see how you just spoke about a standard of what an Omega man does. Was there any standard that your family instilled in you from the beginning? Like how men move in this family? Um, I think my my uncle was probably the best example of the way men should move. Uh, my my grandfather was probably the best example of the way men do move. Okay, and the difference is, my uncle was a man that never ever cheated on his wife. My uncle was a man that was very strict and rigid in the upbringing of his children and maintaining his household. He was a military man. He was an Omega man. So he could have fun too, but he, there were rules and there were, I mean, I interned in Detroit my second year of law school going into my third year and he had a curfew for me and I was 25 years old. Okay. <laughs> he wanted me in by midnight. Okay. Uh, and that was more so because I wasn't from Detroit and he didn't want to have to call my mama and tell her something happened to Richard out at three, four o'clock in the morning, which is what time I was coming in normally because Detroit is a city, right? Uh, my grandfather was a guy who liked the ladies and liked a little bit of the, the hooch. And so uh, he was not the best example of a father and a head of household. Uh, he was loved in the community. He was a great coach. He was a guy's guy. But in our community, a guy's guy most time necessarily means that he's a womanizer too. And that is never good for a family. So he basically, you believe your uncle set the standard of what? He was a, he was a better family man than my grandfather. 
and even than my father. Was that the guy that you looked into when what most guys in the family probably looked up to with the standard that he put out? Not until I got older. I, you know, uh, good time Charlie is always to get, you know, me and my granddaddy used to go sit on the bar at Snoop's and have a drink. He would never do that with my uncle. He thought my uncle was too straight. He wasn't fun. Was it, your uncle wasn't playing with that. No. You think your uncle got to that point because of he watched what he do? What he did? I, I I know it. It's that and the military. The military created that. All right. So we're we're you're in college now. You're you transfer. <laughs> yeah. You're you're Illinois. Um. How many years you stayed up there? Two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. It was it. Chicago area or no? It's in Champaign, which is in southern Illinois. How far is that? One hundred twenty-five, hundred thirty. So that experience up there, how was it up there? I know cold. I know the cold oh, was yeah, a different. It was cold. Uh, I will tell you uh, that is probably one of the happiest times of my life. Um, we were <clears throat> um, in the, the the hunt for the Big Ten championship. Um, we ended up playing in the Liberty Bowl in Bear Bryant's last game. Uh, every week, HBCU or traditional? No, this is tra- PWR. Um, every week, there were eighty three thousand fans in the stadium. It was rocking. It was you know you couldn't get a ticket. Uh, so and we were on TV like three or four times. So that was you know I mean it's essentially pro football, but you play in college. How? But now, are you taking the same experience that you had earlier on in life? Or now the segregation, the connection with different cultures, did that make a difference at this point in your life? Um, no, not really. Because quite frankly, um, the segregation segregation still exists today, man. I mean, you can find segregated communities here in West Palm Beach right now. Go to, go on Tamron. That's segregated, okay? So at a PWI, uh, there's multiple levels of segregation. Athletes hang around athletes. You know, like... I was telling my wife the other day, I said uh, they were having a black student weekend in Champaign in a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm not going because I didn't hang out with students. I can't name five students that I know from my experience at Illinois. I hung out with athletes. I only hung out with athletes. And so uh, I didn't get the full college experience that I could have gotten. Um, but uh, the segregation came Athletes hang out with athletes. Uh, the black students hung out with the black students. When I went to Illinois, it was a campus of 63,000 people, and there were, I believe, about 4,000 blacks. All of us knew each other, uh, and the teachers looked after us because there were so few of us. Uh, and the black community in Champaign looked after the students and the athletes especially. Um, it was a little different at FAMU. We did not have that kind of camaraderie. Uh, I think because it's all black people and every, nobody's any different than anybody else. And so you had a bunch of the foolishness in in some respects with the administration. And, you know, you I mean, the news today, you're looking at 17 kids ineligible because the administration didn't do what they should have done in order for those children to be able to play. Well, we had some of that when I went to FAMU then. Um, uh, but I love my experience. But critically speaking, uh, I, I think situations require uh, camaraderie and or cohesion for survival. The, nece- the necessity for the black students and black administration to be on the same page was for survival's sake. And that was more so at, at Illinois than it was at, at FAMU. 
So, so also when you got into, you're in your senior year, when did you decide you want to go into law? I wanted to go to law school from uh, seventh grade. How did that happen? Um, I'm not good in math. I'm great at reading and speaking. And I didn't want to be broke. And the only person I knew that wasn't a professional athlete that made big money was Judge Rogers, who uh, I had known since birth. And if you know Judge Rogers, Judge Rogers used to be a school teacher before he became a, a judge. He lived directly across the street from my grandfather. So I have known him all of my life, and he is kind of he he directed a lot of my life, uh, and uh, I wanted to be like him in some respects. Uh, the 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 whole law thing evolved. I wanted to be a, a sports agent because I wanted to take my sports career and, and my legal knowledge and use it, and I did that for a minute. But uh, I decided to go to law school in seventh grade. Um, based purely on watching Judge Rogers and wanting to be like him. But you say you didn't have the grade. You didn't have the high-ranking, you know, scores, but you still were able to go through that and be successful in that. Like, what was that like? Well, uh, I, I didn't say I had, didn't have the ability. I just wasn't a good student. Being, a, you know, I, I learned in law school what it takes to be a good student, okay? I always had the capability of being a good student. I just never had the desire. And I'll tell you what it takes. The same desire it took for me to be the uh, third slowest kid going out for the track team in seventh grade and to be the in the top three in the nation by 11th grade is what it takes to be a good student. Okay? So um, good athletes and good students – do more than what everybody else does. Um, so when I would run track, I would go to my normal track practice, and Spataro would have me an additional task to do after track practice that we didn't share with the rest of the team. So I had my practice after the practice, right? Now, I did not realize that good students do that too until I was in law school, and I, uh, and, and when you're in your first year of law school, they make you get in study groups. That's in order so you, because when, the first day of law school, they tell you, look to the left, look to the right. One of y'all not going to be here at the end of the year. We're going to flunk you out, okay? And, of course, my competitive spirit say, I ain't going to be the one. I'm like, it's going to be you or you, right? So uh, they make you have, they have study groups of about four students each. So I would go to my study group, and you had to be there from, let's say, five to six. And I get my hat and be gone. I'm now it's time to go eat or time to go hit the club or do whatever I was gonna do. And I left my book bag in the room where we would study. And I drove all the way to my house in Northwest DC. So it took about 30 minutes to get there and about 30 minutes to get back once I realized my bag was missing. When I come back, them jokers who I was studying with, who I left, they were still there. And it clicked. They were secret studying. And so from that point on, my competitive spirit said, well, maybe I need to start doing a little secret study. Yeah. So that's what, that, that is how I got through is that, and that's that voice again. It said, aha, 
They secret studying. Something was saying that to me. I could have come back and say, wow, I got my bad. Look at them in there studying. But I had a voice to say, nah, look at that. They doing what you used to do when you ran track. They putting in that extra work. So did you go to, after graduating, you graduated at Illinois? I graduated from San Jose State. I went back to California and graduated. Went back to California. Mm -hmm. um, when and then did I you, went to Howard. Then you went to Howard. So you right. went to Howard for your master, for your- For, for law degree, yeah. Mm -hmm. What was that, how many years did you three. do? Three. How was that experience going into Howard for law? Oh, man. Uh, you know, my my father had, had attended Howard Law School, but didn't finish. Pipe dreaming. Come on, don't do him like that. Don't, don't do my boy like that. <laughs> I mean, that. it's the truth. And so, and so that was kind of my impetus for wanting to go to Howard because Howard is the preeminent uh, law school for African-American lawyers and for Af African-American um, uh, advancement in this country. You know, Brown v. Board of Education, Howard lawyer. Uh, first Supreme Court Justice, Howard lawyer. Uh, first governor after Reconstruction, Howard lawyer. Uh, first black mayor after Reconstruction, uh, Mayor Dinkins, who's a cousin of mine, Howard lawyer. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is a, a tradition and a history of Howard creating uh, lawyers who affect black life in America, and I wanted to be a part of that. And and they maintain uh, the the traditions that made them that way um, at Howard. So it's not, it's not a cakewalk. It's a, it's a rigorous study and they let you know your responsibilities to your community and, and to black people. And your competitive, you know, nature and how you move, was that still important when you got to Howard, how you study and cause those things you learned from your peers growing up? Not at first. Um, not at first. I mean, I'm in DC, man. Chocolate City. Uh, <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I had a competition with uh, Tracks Nightclub and, uh, and Tacoma Station versus, you know, doing what I was supposed to do. And, and I'll tell you, I almost flunked out. I was there by one point uh, after my first year. So I was almost that guy on the left or the right. And uh, so I, uh, I, I figured it out. What was D.C. like for you when you first got there? Uh, well, D.C. was my first exposure to black politics because Marion Barry was the mayor. Uh, he was beloved. Uh, he and, you know, even when I got there in 1986, uh, people were still talking about programs that he had put in place in the 70s where every child that wanted a job could get a job. Um, he made multiple black millionaires. Uh, and so that was my first exposure to um, to politics and politics being effective for black advancement. So that is what I got the bug there. I didn't realize I had it, but I got the bug there. And um, law school then became a tool to put all of that into uh, motion. Were you totally disconnected from Palm Beach, from FAM, California, Illinois, back to California, then out to Howard. Were you were you back home at any moment in, in that time? I, I really didn't come home for about 10 years. Uh, I would come home for a weekend, a couple days, but I was away for about 10 years. So also, I want to, I'm trying to see how some of this tie in because you have three children or two? Three. Three. When did you have your first child? I was uh, 18. 18 here. Yeah. So you were in 
Palm Beach. I'm here when you when you right. then you went out to school. Right. How how difficult was it? Because I know that had to be a, a a hard shift for you. Right. And I'm assuming the support of your family. Like, how was that for you having your first child? Uh, having a, having a child as a teenager is never easy. Uh, fortunately, we had family that took up the slack while I was off being a college student. Uh, and and I tell her all the time that that she is the test child. Uh, and she got all the mistakes that young parents make. Um, but uh, I, I, I got to say she is a beautiful human being. You know, I, I, I tell everybody that the greatest successes that I have had in life are my three children all being good people, beautiful people, people I like being around, and my participation in the Rosewood Claims Bill uh, Reparations Act. Uh, professionally and emotionally, those are probably the three greatest accomplishments that I have. So, uh, was two it the greatest accomplishments? Which is a, amazing things. Was it the village that raised her to start off? Uh, well, no. My mother was active, and 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 um, um, her grandmother on her mother's side, um, all of them. Yeah, I guess you could say the village uh, came together to make sure that she had, um, and I got her full time. Uh, at nine and from then until college. So you said full time um, when she turned nine means she lived with you th through yeah. the whole process. Mm -hmm. So after or before college, like uh, after law school, after law school. Mm -hmm. So, so after, so after, so the transitioning from law school, then being a full time dad, were you married in or not when I first came back, but a year afterwards. A year, that's mm -hmm. with your ex-wife. Right. You married. Mm -hmm. And then you guys have two children. Right. Even that process, like, how was it? Because I think some of the things that, the testimony of life, how was that? I guess it was really more for her. How was that for her just being a step? Because you, did you guys have children? No, not when, she, yet? no when she, uh, we didn't have children uh, probably the first three years that she was with me. Uh, and then my my middle daughter came along. Um, I'm certain that there was some adjustment to that. Um, but uh, we tried to make sure that she felt special and that we gave her all the things that uh, were, would help her be a successful adult. So, and even with that, um, how, 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 how was that for you? You went from nine years without her you know, going through school, finishing law school, then getting her, her nine years as a young lady. How was that for you? Like I said, she's the test child. Um, what The one thing I will say I learned from, from raising her is you do not raise daughters like you do sons. Um, I, I am a parent that believes in speaking unfiltered truth to my children. You can't do that with girls. You have to you have to love them and date them, and so that they will hear what you're saying, as opposed to you saying it and they cut cut your cut it off and don't hear you. You know, sometimes we what we say people don't hear; they only hear what they want to hear, and what you mean and what you you know conveying that. And I I had to learn that um, as her father is that is that sometimes she was not hearing what I was saying and did not realize the space from which it was coming. Uh, and you can't challenge girls like you do boys. Girls, 
girls generally don't don't receive and this is my experience don't receive you trying to punk them into doing something boys you can challenge them and and and, and kind of okay uh i kn- i knew you couldn't do it anyway the competitive but, nature is right, different the, the competitive nature is very different and uh, whereas girls would be like, I knew I couldn't do it either. And, you know, you may lose them uh, when they could do it all along. You know, I, I, funny story. My, my daughter was quite a track athlete as well. And so. Um, Your oldest daughter. Yes. And so uh, one day she was getting ready to go run in the uh, Golden uh, South Classic in, in Seattle. And uh, she, she ran horribly in the preliminary uh, race. And I said, well, what was the problem? She told me, she says, those girls' legs were so big. I said, what, what? Those girls' legs are big? Yes. And I could tell they were fast because of how big their legs were. And so, you know, I had to regroup. I'm like, where is this coming from? And so we had to work on our self-confidence because the size of a girl's legs, I, I said, hell, she could have been overweight, you know. But she was convincing herself she wasn't ready. And so uh, now with a boy, I'd be like, man, are you crazy? You know, I would have come with him a little little different. different. Uh, But with her, I didn't want to lose her. So, you know, we had to talk about it. And I had to make her laugh and get her where she even started saying, well, maybe that is a little crazy to think that she can run because she got big legs. But, you know, (laughs) but, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that you have. A a good parent is always self-evaluating and evaluating what's working and what's not. And at some point in time, um, you know, there's no handbook. You know, you make mistakes and you you get successes. And how was the relationship with mom, her mom growing up? Well, her her mother passed when she was 12. So, uh, you know. Unfortunately, you know she she died very young, and uh, so we had to bring her through that as well. How how was dealing with that? Uh, very difficult because uh, she we she came and was healthy, looked to be healthy as a horse. Uh, she came and spent the weekend with uh, Tamira, my daughter. And then went home and passed like that Wednesday, you know. So it was very unexpected. Uh, you know, having an unexpected death is never never easy for anybody. Um, there were probably some unresolved issues between the two, uh, because my my mother's my my daughter's mother didn't raise her at all for the most part, and uh, so there were some unresolved issues with that. And um, you know, so we we had her in therapy, mental health counseling for years, uh, in order to adjust. And, and help I was going to ask for that. How important was therapy to get through the process? I, I I am a proponent of counseling. I mean, I think we all need it, especially Black people. You know, we certainly need it, and uh, we don't get enough of it. But how do we get to the point to even know it's a thing? Um. How did you even get to the point to know it was a thing to do? Well, my mother being an educator, you know, she was always, she would, she would be diagnosing, you know, <laughs> her pocket diagnosis of, she diagnoses everything. So um, her in my ear made me realize it's a thing. But not until recently did I realize that we all really, you know, think about this, Beethoven. If you understand, if you remember the Brown v. Board of Education case, where they had the the doll tests, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And they had the black doll and the white doll. The white doll was pure. The white doll was nice. The white doll was smart. The white doll, the black doll was dumb. The white doll was mean. The black doll was evil. Right. And they used that psychological testing to justify or to support desegregating the schools because of the negative impact that racism and segregation was having on our children, that they were seeing likenesses of themselves to be bad, evil. Okay. Well, the conditioning that brought us to that point didn't just go away. That illness that had us looking at ourselves so negatively didn't disappear. Now, if a person was in the military and they had been, they call it Stockholm syndrome in the military. When you start liking your, your oppressor, start loving the, the, your, your, you know, your, your opposition more than you love yourself. They call that Stockholm syndrome. Okay. When people in prison start identifying with the, with the captors, if you were in the military and you suffered from that, you could go down to the VA and get lifetime benefits, psychological counseling forever. It just was for the average Joe Smoke citizen. Never got any therapy, never, ever been addressed. We still got generations of people who are affected by it, raising children who likewise are affected by it. That same psychological condition that we saw that was identified in 54 continues to this day. We see it when we change the way we talk when white people come around. We see it with our inability to address situations we know are wrong and are scared to speak up. So until you recognize that you have some issues, and, and, th- and that's on the race issue, but we all have issues that are separate and apart in our daily lives that we probably need to address but you have to be open enough and critical of yourself enough to say, okay, I need to work on that. But even, even then, do you believe having the right people around you get to the point that, you know, because if you don't know you need to work on yourself, how do you get to the next chapter in life? I think that certainly you need people. You, you, well, if everybody's saying it, they're not all crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if everybody call you crazy, yeah, you yeah, yeah. You know, you're not the only sane person. So when you're hearing something repeatedly uh, that you need to work on, like um, you need to work on it, you know, and you need to be open enough. Uh, and that's easier said than done. A lot of people cannot be self critical. A lot of people can't look at themselves and say, "I need to." work on this. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, as well as I do in our community, mental health has had a stigma for so long uh, that we look at, uh, uh, we call them crazy. I mean, we got all kinds of names mm-hmm. uh, for people that, that may need to go and get some counseling. Um, and, you know, he's special. Yeah. There you go. That's, that's the key word. You know, for that. Yeah. Special. Um, when you got, so now you're out of law school, <laughs> you have a family, you had to step up and, you know, be mm-hmm. a parent. Right. You have to do what you have to do to be a parent. You got married. You guys started having children. Right. How many? Three children. Was how was it raising three children back in West Palm Beach? Did you already w- working at a law firm? Right. Or mm-hmm. so you was so explain. Yeah. Give me a little bit of that. 
So I, uh, when I first got back here, I was working at a firm, Ackerman, Bax, Cloyd & Share, which is a bankruptcy and collections firm. And, um, you know, we bought, ironically enough, um, uh, Judge Rogers, uh, one of Judge Rogers' houses, which is where I live now. And, uh, whoa. Yeah. And so, uh, in fact, it's the house I, I live in now is where I learned how to swim at like 11 years old. So this house meant something. To you. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, and so, um, we, we, we bought that and, um, you know, uh, as a young parent, uh, I tried to be the kind of parent that I did not receive from my parents. So my dad wasn't around. I made sure I was around. Uh, my dad wasn't active, so I made sure that I was very active. Uh, parenting and imparting the necessary lessons of life was important to me, um, as important as any other thing I've done. And so I took the same kind of attitude towards it. You know, it wasn't even a question if I was going to go to the games or go to the recitals. or And we tried to put them, you know— um, I tell everybody, I spoke a couple of weeks ago to, to a group and, and I use the parable of the, um, of the uh, prodigal son is that every child uh, isn't, you don't give every child the same thing. You give each child what they need. And so I've tried to do that because every child that I have has a different need. Um, and I've tried to assess what that need is and how I can best provide it. How what was that process like with both parents and you know? Because I think I think there's a lot of difficulty. I'm learning more and more today, especially with parenting with two different parents coming from two different households. How did you guys get to the point to be in one page and how you guys raise well, the children? That, there again, that's God because uh, I can tell you that. I don't know of a relationship I've ever been in with a woman where we discuss parenting. So um, most of us were raised differently and whether or not you're on the same page, that's happenstance in my opinion. Um, I don't see, you know, young couples sitting around talking about, well, are, are you in the spanking? Uh, do you believe in that kind of discipline? You know, you don't do that. And that can create problems in the relationship if you are on the same page. And fortunately, we were on the same page in terms of discipline. And I think that that is the primary, um, that, that, that can be um, a major problem in any marriage, family, where you have parents who are not supportive of one another in discipline. So, and that that's... Is that something that you guys know from the beginning? You believe? No, I or? think I think that it. I think that having shared values uh, probably equates into um, having shared ideas on discipline. You know, if you want your children to be successful in a certain way, well, you in order to get there, if you have any concept of what it takes to get there, well, you know what you the child can and cannot do which would be detrimental to them being successful. So when you have shared values in terms of what you see as success, well, then the discipline part probably comes pretty easy. 
But if you are a parent that doesn't really set any standards for your child or doesn't have the same uh, belief of what success looks like, then I think that that's where the problems become. So then you guys get to the point where you have two two young ladies and you then have a boy. Right. It was Richard. 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 How mm-hmm. was that excitement for having your first boy? Uh, I mean, every, I, don't, I know it's not no different than the other girls. I want to be clear. Well, they're all no, important. that's not true. Okay, every 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 child, every every father wants to have a namesake or a young per, a young uh, carbon copy of themselves, and um, sadly, life doesn't work that way. And the one thing that I got out of the relationship with my father is that I would never ever try and make my son live in my shadow or become a a poor copy of me. You know, I read the book, Do You by Russell Simmons. And in that book, he talks about uh, no one, you know, in, when we look at people who are successful, many times we try and emulate them in order to duplicate their success. But if you want to truly be successful, you have to create your own lane. And what that means is doing you. Because nobody can't be a better Beethoven than Beethoven can be. Nobody can be a better Richard Riles than Richard Riles can be. Richard Riles Sr. So if Richard Riles Jr. tries to be Richard Riles Sr., all he's going to be is a poor copy. He'll never be as good as the original because he can't outbe me. And so that's what I've tried to understand and convey to my children. Create your own lane. Follow your own path. And when I see them trying to just carbon copy me, uh, I have, in most instances, dissuaded them from doing it because I didn't think that they had, you know, there are certain things I have that that I think are unique to me that I don't think anybody can do better than me. And uh, when they try to emulate that and not well, I'm honest with them. I'm like, hey, man, this is what you do well. Uh, Concentrate on that. Um, I'm not going to tell you don't do what you're doing, but I'm saying that all I see you doing is trying to just take my script and throw your freak on it and instead of going in your own lane. And and there, there's another, I want to add some other things into that family dynamic, which I think is a real thing that happens often that most of us don't talk about it, don't speak how we heal from it. And I think you got divorced in that process also. What was that like? from the family side and also just you personally as a man, what did you go through with that? Well, I mean, um, when you've had a almost 30 year relationship with a person, um, uh, it's a loss, like a death in some respects, you've lost a family member. Um, but you know, marriages don't break up in an instant. Generally marriages break up over time. And so you know, you get to that point after some time. Um, but having been the product of a divorce, I tried and I was trying, I tried to be very sensitive to the needs of my children going through that process. And fortunately, they were all adults and out of the house by the time, you know, um, my divorce occurred. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult, never easy. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get beyond those issues that made us bad marriage partners uh, to still remain friends. How was it? What do you believe and how affected your children? Do you think? Um, well, my mother, the, the, the 
psychoanalyst has said <laughs> my son is the most affected. Uh, I'm not really sure. Um, I think that it has made my middle daughter uh, apprehensive about marriage. And it may have likewise made him apprehensive about marriage. Um, is it the fear? Excuse me? Is it the fear of divorce? Yeah, I think it's the fear of divorce. Uh, I think that uh, uh, they might have saw some things that they didn't like in terms of marriage that they don't want to have to experience. Uh, I'm not really sure what it is. You know, we have never talked about it. Um, I've told them that they can come to me anytime they want and we can talk about it. But, um, you know. How did you deal with it? Uh, probably not that well. Uh, I think that, uh, that you know, uh, it, anytime you, if you understand death and the loss of of a loved one, um, you know, the loss of a loved one occurs over a period of time is different than the loss of a loved one, like the here today, gone tomorrow. So, you know, when you emotionally are losing connection, uh, that is a tough thing. And so uh, living in a house where is nothing but turmoil and bickering and, you know, it's just not good uh, or healthy. Uh, sometimes it's just a better thing to call it what it is. We're, we're not there anymore. You think that affects a lot of things from business to when there is so much disconnection from the home? Uh, it can if you can't compartmentalize. Um, doing what I do, I have to compartmentalize. And I and you know in in my personal relationships I realize that that is not something everyone is trained to do or can do, but you know when you're dealing in in, in you're trying lawsuits, sometimes bad testimony come out, so you have to you can't just go in the tank, you have to put that behind you and keep it moving, and uh, I think I do that very well. Uh, so my personal life doesn't affect my professional life. So the disconnecting, <clears throat> you could that's normal in your practice. Right, that's normal. But uh, being um, doing that is not necessarily good uh, for your emotional health because you're carrying all this baggage that you need to address, <clears throat> um, but you've compartmentalized it. It's the only way I can cope is by compartmentalizing is that I can put one thing in one bucket. And, you know, um, one of the things, though, in my family is that we don't hold grudges. We might argue, get angry, fuss, yell, and 30 minutes later, we cool. Why and how? Just the way I was raised. I never have been a person to sit around mad for days. And, you know, I know people that are that way. But <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we're going to keep it going. <laughs> we're going to keep it going. We're not going to go on it. But I'm not. I don't. I generally let it go. And keep it moving. Um, so, so with within that, because you, while you're going through some of the different turmoils with family and adjusting, you now I know you also had a, a practice where you had a, you guys had created a I don't know what it's called where you guys create a partnership with another law firm, yeah, a larger mm -hmm. firm. Mm -hmm. How was even that process? Because you know dealing with all that and building this new firm out. Um, well, I was there for, uh, seven years and, and even uh, how did that come about? Well, um, 
the type of cases I handle primarily are what are called negligent security cases. Uh, the average spend from the law firm's side is about $100,000 per case. And um, they are very labor intensive. And I was doing a lot of them. Uh, and I still have quite a number. And the thought was that the firm would provide the resources in order to enable me to do more. Um, but like all things that you go into, sometimes the thought versus the reality are different. And, uh, and I was in a situation where um, uh, my partners uh, were people who wanted to put the minimum amount of resources into cases uh, and get the highest return irrespective of results. And I live in this community and I could not do that. It's not the same thing. So the disconnecting happened. So, and in that same tone, um, you then adjusted or you seem like you always had the vision to go into politics, right? You know, where the inspiration from dealing with the political side came from what, from your upbringing. And I'm assuming your grandfather, there was a couple of names you said on right. there. Uh, Quite honestly, it became uh, came from my mentor in D.C. His name is Jimmy Cobb. He was the first general counsel to Independence Federal Savings Bank, which is the uh, largest black bank in D.C. And he um, he uh, was one of Marion Barry's. He was a counsel to Marion Barry, and so I got to see firsthand uh, how D.C. politics works and how it worked for the betterment of black people. And uh, then I was just, I mean, just so happened, um, I got a summer internship in Detroit in the uh, city attorney's office in uh, Detroit under the Coleman Young administration. And so then I got to see another iconic black mayor uh, affect the lives of hundreds of thousands of, of black people. And uh, the fire was lit at that point. So, and then, so you ran for office and one, um, the city of West Palm Beach. I'm yep. not. Mm -hmm. And how was even that to make that action happen to go through that process? Why and and how was it for you? I mean, uh, I had I have been helping out on campaigns and getting other people elected since I came back here in 1990, mm -hmm. and so I understood the process and. Uh, you know, it, it worked to perfection with the plan we put in, in place. Um, the dissatisfaction came with the former government that we have in the city of West Palm Beach, which is a, which is a, a strong mayor form of government. And I could not affect the change for my community that I saw in D.C., that I saw in Detroit. And I, we are so lacking in um, any political benefit, uh, I could not be a party to false hopes and dreams by remaining in that seat. So was it a lot of, I don't know if it was the best politically way to put it, was there a lot of, um, uh, so a lot of things that you wanted to do and you were not able to do? Absolutely. For um, like what? Well, um, you know, what we ate, what we were able to do is we got a uh, black city manager, we got a black police chief, we got a 
a, uh, a black CRA director who turned the job down, but we were able to make sure we got him. Um, and so in those instances, we were able to put some people in uh, conceivably in good positions to benefit our community. In terms of being able to affect real change, um, the city of West Palm Beach had done a disparity study which showed that black folks just weren't getting their piece of the pie. And the city had not moved forcefully or intentionally enough to change that dynamic, in my estimation. And um, there were black faces in place who were whose job it was to make that happen, but instead they didn't. And as a commissioner, I didn't have the ability to make them do it under the, the former government we have in the city of West Palm Beach. Um, and and, and what, what I want to say to you, Beethoven, is that unfortunately in this country, uh, black people are generally given symbolism over results. And I'll give it to you like this. They gave us Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, but we ain't got $20 in our pocket. They gave us a Juneteenth holiday, but we too broke the day, day off. So we have the symbolism of a holiday of a $20 bill, but we ain't getting nothing for it. And so we have a lot of black symbolic leadership. We ain't getting nothing out of them. And so I wasn't going to be a party to that. What do we do to change some of that? We got it. You, 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 we have to get leaders who are unafraid to speak truth to power, who've proven it before they get there, uh, who, and, and when I say speak truth to power, that doesn't mean going around and burning down the city every time an issue comes up. It means sometimes speaking forthrightly and negotiating a good resolution to the issue and working across lines, whether it be Republican, Democrat. Uh, we have black folks who are in leadership positions who like taking pictures and shaking hands, and that's about it. Uh, they can't point to one thing that they've done that would benefit, that, that they can say have benefited black people specifically. And that goes back to that whole conditioning that we talked about previously where we don't even sometimes realize that we are conditioned and predisposed not to think black first. Or we think that something's wrong with that when you do it. I can't, I can't say that. I can't, I can't speak like that because we are so desirous of white affirmation that we don't want to step on any toes. And you can't, you can't do the hard things. I mean, we're so far behind. I'll tell you, one of the critical things that got me to where I decided that, that, that I needed to seek another office or I needed to figure another way to impact my community, I had a situation where I, where I was called by one of my supporters, one of my wealthy supporters, to a condo situation where they were a developer was going to build a building that was going to block their southern view. I get to the to the meeting. There's engineers in the room. There's uh, doctors, lawyers, uh, professors from the universities in the area. 
all who live in this building. And they had hired an expert that was going to be able to come and tell the city why this was either illegal, what the developer wanted to do, or there were all kinds of a host of code reasons why they shouldn't be able to do what they're going to do, right? I'm there as support from my people who supported me. And I'm sitting there thinking, my, they already got it handled, right? I leave that meeting and go to a meeting for the community over there off of Tamara. And they have crime issues. They have uh, the city built freshwater lake development. And when they built the development, they uh, put deed restrictions so that uh, absentee owners couldn't come in there and buy the place up and then rent it out. Well, the city hadn't been hadn't been um, enforcing the law. And so now some foreigners had come in and bought like five places and they were dropping motors in the front yard, dealing drugs. I mean, a real bad situation. Well, the residents that came and were trying to get help couldn't even articulate themselves, couldn't, couldn't put together a plan. I mean, I had to kind of take the reins from them, which is what a leader is supposed to do. But it made me realize just how far we are from them. I mean, I, I was sitting there thinking, I mean, we are like 50, 60 years behind them in just getting the basic necessities that the government should be giving us. What do you think we need to do to, to enhance that, to change that? Um, get better leadership. Um, we got to stop supporting people just because that's who we supported all along and just because they black, uh, because all black leaders aren't good leaders. Uh, and we have to uh, organize, you know, the, the, the forces that want to keep us where we are now are very well organized and we are not. Do, and you believe the leaders will have to help organize? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 well, generally, all movements are the bottom up. So the people are going to have to get frustrated enough and, and recognize that our cohesion, uh, you know, and something I'm working on is bringing uh, all of the communities, black communities in the county together. So, you know, there are differences between there. There are there are I, I don't want to say differences. There are divisions between the African-American and the Haitian community that we cannot afford because at the end of the day, we got the same tyranny. We got the same oppression. We got the same issues affecting us. Nobody's special. Um, but I realize that there is a historical um, component to the mistreatment of Haitian immigrants by African-Americans, that still there are some scars. We got to get beyond that because ultimately we got the same issues and we are, our children uh, need us to put the mess behind us and start working together. Do you believe that the issue, because I mean, I hear this often and I think for me, the lack of understanding of politics and the clarity and the, the reality that I see from my reality and when I when I speak with politicians in our community and the disconnect from the everyday person, I think it's just extreme. Because I think the everyday person, they communicate a certain way, they live a certain way, they understand a certain way. 
And the politicians, they move a certain way. I don't think there's any true connection to it. Right. How do we get to the point where we could, you know, put the two together that there's politicians that's actually listening to the people and understand the hardship that the people are going through? I think we need to get away from the traditional way of selecting politicians. Sometimes the people need to recruit who they want to lead them. Um. Far too many people decide that they want to start a profession in politics. And you're right. You know, one of the things as a trial lawyer I have to do is understand how regular people think and talk. Right. You can't use all them big words. You can't, you know, you got to talk in people talk so that they can understand you and they can relate to you. And you got to understand what emotionally motivates them. The only people generally who can do that well are people from the community. You know, they understand what it's like to have hear gunshots all night. They understand what it's like for the for the for the rent man to go up nine hundred dollars on the rent with no notice. You know, you get disconnected from those issues because you don't experience them. So the the leaders I find to be most effective are leaders who come from or from the groundswell of the community and who truly understand and are working with those issues. And as long as we have people that, that you know, they got they got a great resume, but they don't have a great heart, then that's why you get what you get. It's a real thing. Now, with all that, Brother Richard, okay. what do you do to disconnect from all this mess? And all the good things. I don't want to say mess. Yeah. The, the political noise that you go through. But how do you get to the point where the human side of Richard live, man? Um. I love to travel. I love to barbecue. Are you good? That's the difference, though. I oh yeah. Clear. Oh yeah. I'm I'm better than most. Okay. Okay. We're gonna go with I, that. I'm a ribologist. Here in we fa- go. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I went to a, a rib camp in Georgia. Wait, wait I, a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> what does a rib camp look like? And when you tell yourself I'm going to a, a rib camp, right? How'd you get to that point? Well, it's one of these guys. One of these television guys. I'm not gonna give him any. Props, but <laughs> one of these television shows where they where they have the rib contest mm-hmm. every every week. Uh, he has a camp in Unadilla, Georgia, and my children. That's why I say they're great kids. Bought me for my Christmas present a uh, membership to the camp, and I flew to Unadilla, Georgia, and we cooked whole hog ribs, brisket, butt uh, for two days. A rib camp. Rib camp. So when you yeah. came out of rib camp, mm-hmm. were you now a ribologist? That's when I was a ribologist before. I just refined my skills. That's all. Oh yeah. my but God. Yeah, yeah. You know, I understand the tug on the meat, not too much smoke. It was a real process. Oh, yeah. It's a it's a scientific and you know, and the beautiful thing about cooking, uh, whether it be barbecuing or cooking anything, is it is a, a creative process and uh there's science to it. Um, so we need to do it like a rib competition in the community. Yeah, yeah. well, I, well, we 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 went to the barbecue uh, cook off at Gaines Park. We came in third. If it wasn't for my two partners, I probably would have come in first. But uh, <laughs> uh, what if, a if, it was, if it wasn't for Mike Carter and uh, Alfonso Nubo, I He's probably would have like that. It would have been a wrap. Yeah, I would have been a wrap. But you know, they pulled me down. I, um, I get it, man. I get it. But then you also got remarried. Yes, I did. Tell me how that happened. Well, I'm not going to go into detail on that, but how how did you get to the point to do that again? Well, I met a woman who uh, uh, 
was kind, um, met me at, at the right place in my life, uh, provides. Want, before you keep going, I'm sorry. People are going to be mad that I cut you off on that. But I want to go back to the importance of being kind. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, being nice and being kind is, is, is one of the primary components, I think, of good people. Um, I am working on me, all right? Uh, I was reading something the other day about the seven deadly sins, and um, wrath is one of the sins that you should try and, and control. Uh, far too many of us are vindictive, and we are we're going to uh, get them back. We, you know, we're going to set the record straight. And really, you don't have to. The universe will do that. As long as you are doing the right thing and, and yeah, okay, I, will, I may recognize that a person has mistreated me or done something wrong, but I ain't got to get them back. The universe will get them back. And what I am learning is that that allows you to leave some of the baggage. Uh, far too many of us carry those kind of grudges. And... Uh, and I try, and I'm trying to move through life with with as little baggage as possible. You know, I want to be able to get up and go. And um, so, uh, she's a very kind person. Um, and, you know, loving, makes the house a home. Um, cute in her own way, not in the law. Um, and so that. Uh, uh, you know, gives me a different perspective on things that I wouldn't even have an interest in, but for my relationship with her, uh, and which is which is uh, pleasing from the standpoint that um, you know you don't know how much how beautiful plants are until you out there planting them. You know, I didn't realize. You know, my dad was a big nature dude, right? And not until he died and I went to, uh, I, was, I spent a, a month in Dubois, Wyoming, in the mountains. And did I realize what he was trying to convey to me about nature and beauty. And uh, so I watch and I listen. Uh, this new person in my life bring things to me that I had not looked at before, you know. And so that experience is is what keeps you alive and keeps you young and keeps you moving forward. When last last statement. When it comes to legacy, how important is that to you? And what are you? What have you done? And what are you doing about it? Um, I think that it is extremely important for all of because all of us have a legacy, whether we want it or not. You know, uh, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. And so as I. Uh, continue to adjust. Uh, I, I I listen to the criticism sometimes, um, and I and I but I don't try and read my own clippings and get too satisfied in what I have done. I'm continuing to try and affect the community in a positive way. Uh, I've always been there for the young people in this community, and and I end up in spaces and places that most folks would not think that I would go. But because I love people, especially black people of all nationalities, ethnicities, uh, I may be with my Haitian brothers one week, my Jamaican brothers another week, my African brothers another week, uh, because I do love the experience. Uh, in fact, uh, I was in uh, New York uh, last week 
And I was in the cab and I could tell he, the, the guy, the music, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I said, man, where's that music from? He says, from Haiti. I said, where are you from? He says, I'm from St. Mark. Now, I've been to St. Mark after we talked a minute more times than he's been to St. Mark. So, uh, so that kind of interaction where we, uh, where you meet new people and new experiences, that's kind of where I want my legacy to be. My, what I want my legacy to be, I think, is that I brought people together for the benefit of everyone. Well, Brother Riles, that statement was a real one. Is there anything else that I left off that you would want to tell people or speak about before we get off of this, man? I want to make sure you have that opportunity. Oh, I, I, I think you got it, man. We done went over a lot of stuff. I, I enjoyed it, man. I think for me, like, once again, the reason of doing this is to give people the behind the scene, the testimony of what you've been through, just still moving forward and looking for, you know, creating the next chapter. Is important for me for other people man so All i right. want to bring that value by telling stories like yourself man thank you man thank and you good luck and everything All i right. know is never gonna end for you right. you're gonna keep flying thank you brother. thank you brother All right. thank you <laughs>